This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. there. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. I'm Anthony Boxhall. I'm Bron Burton. I'm Rex Hunter. Good morning all. Good, Good morning. morning. We're Bron, I think you and I have risen from <laughs> the dead. Um, we both sound a bit low that, don't we? It's actually keeping in theme with um, Radiothon this year. <laughs> Upcoming is. Radiothon. I should have um, I should have picked up my flu a week later and then I would have really felt like, I actually do feel a bit like a walking zombie today. Oh. But, um, but I'm here <laughs> and thank you so much Nicole Caridi's Big love to you, lady, for um, for filling at short notice last week. When um, yeah. Anyway, thank you. But you have, much. you have, you have resurrected. Is that the right word? Yeah. I, you know, from from a near death experience. To tell, really. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rex. I'm yeah, so Rex. You're not meant to be that blunt. Mate. I'm so foggy yeah. and dopey still that I'm kind of still just processing it. But um. Yeah, no, um, this is day 11, I think, of it. And, um, yeah, word on the street, man. The flu's out oh, there. Oh, no, it's appalling. I think I, I was driving home from a meeting on Wednesday, I think it was. I left there and went, oh, gee, I feel a bit of a twinge. By the time I got home, I just couldn't see straight. Mm. Just, it hits like a plague, this one. Knocks you flat. But I must admit, I, I don't think I had the I think you had the, you've got the proper one. Well, the word from the my GP 18, was 19, it, it, it was the, the flu. And yeah. the annoying part was that I had a flu shot, but he did say there is, there is a word amongst the medical fraternity. We should ask the radiotherapy people when yeah. they come in. Um, I've, I've dropped to a tenor, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> my, my voice has dropped almost a full octave. No, the, um, and mine's just a bad Demi Moore impersonation. <laughs> there's some thoughts of um, uh, a rogue strain of flu doing the rounds. Rogue. 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 Yeah. Because all the other ones are usually really compliant. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and, Rex, you look remarkably well. Oh, I've been keeping healthy. I've been keeping away from you two. <laughs> You're ship-shaped. Uh, ship-shaped Bristol fan. Uh, yes. <laughs> after an hour in, in an enclosed, yeah. non Ventilated studio, Rex. You may want to revisit that. You are on Radio Marinara, or perhaps we should call it Sikorama, but um, we'll be alive and we will be alive for next week. Yes, first of our two Radiothon shows. So, most looking forward to them. There's big drum roll starting up. Mm. Some fabulous um, bits of video that you might have seen. Oh, yes. Which have been hilarious. Hey, thank you, Tim, too, very much, and Andrew Minga for um, vital bits and soulful bits. Yeah, Tim, a consummate professional, mm. as always. Always good. Always. always good. Should we go through the program? Oh, I was going to say that. Rex, you're here because we're going to talk about something, Recky. Oh, we're talking about the HM disappearance and the finding of the HMS Sydney off Geraldton in Western Australia. Disappeared in 1941 and found in 2008. By far the largest maritime disaster in Australia's history? Yes, yes. In terms uh, of loss of life? Oh, loss of life, yeah. yeah. Loss of, uh, especially for the Navy, that was mm. the biggest loss of... Um, 
645 people aboard the, the vessel just um, disappeared during World War Two. Oh, you'll find all about it later. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, no, it's an amazing me. story. Oh, it's incredible. And then whales? Yes, we've got Dave Donnelly coming in from Dolphin Research Institute. So a couple of weeks ago on the program we reported from a press release of theirs that um, 50th whale has just been catalogued for Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. I think they're the geographical boundaries, but we'll check that out with Dave. So he's coming in to talk about um, what this means in terms of uh, its significance. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask him about what the other 49 whales are like as well. (laughs) And are they always in there together or like they come and go? Well, this this is the not just the sighting but the actual whale so they're documenting yeah. them and, and re- recording them i don't think there's ever been 50 there together oh in no one no spot. no i think it's over just, quite a period of time yeah. um, it's remarkable. so he's going to be talking about that and um also what's coming up for them um yeah and then after that diane bray from the museum's popping in yes well she's popping back because she was here a few weeks ago and we were talking about the um, great expedition of the investigator up the east coast of australia mm. so the csiro vessel led by Museum Victoria, um, Tim O'Hara, who was the uh, the expedition leader. Um, so Diane came in from Museum Victoria to talk about the faceless fish, which is kind <laughs> yes. of their, their poster <laughs> pin-up discovery or rediscovery as it turns out. But we um, we spent so much time talking about the faceless fish, we kind of didn't really get on to <laughs> much else. else yes. <laughs> so she's coming in to talk about some other stuff, but also National Science Week is coming up. It actually coincides with Radiothon. Um, so we will cover that today, uh, some of the great stuff that's coming up and also talk a little bit about Nocturnal, which is their kind of museum exhibit um, or exhibition series for grown-ups. It kind of combines Friday night drinks with... Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard of, about but this. Like, n- night at the museum, kind of Friday night drinks at the museum. Without Ben Stiller. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not like saying, yeah, let's find out about that. <laughs> but also they, they did some other incredible work by finding a new shipwreck off the prom as well. Ooh. Just as well you're here, Rex. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to cover all that and more. And do you want to, do you know what, what's the weather like? Because I heard this week's going to get colder. Well, <laughs> winter is coming. <laughs> I think it's here. News. I reckon it's here. Uh, I, I, <laughs> anyway, winter is here. Winter is here. 13 today. Um, after a low of nine, it wasn't actually that cold last night. No, it wasn't. Could you believe the other day when it was like, it was the middle of the day and I was like, oh, I wonder what it is. Check the app. And it's 7.1. Yeah. feels like 5.4. Yeah. And I'm standing in sunshine going, this is ridiculous. And it's still freezing. It was anyway. good. I feel like we haven't had a proper winter until we've had a day where it doesn't get over 10. Yeah, I agree. So agree. We're, we're done. We've ticked that box. We yeah. can move we on can to make, spring exactly. now. Mostly cloudy today, high chance of showers, possible hail and thunder, winds 25 to 40 kilometres now, it's going to be windy. Tomorrow, 13 and a few showers, partly cloudy on uh, Tuesday and 15. Wednesday, it's going to get up to 16. Oh, Thursday, it's going to get up to 18. Yeah, see, I don't believe that. (laughs) Oh, well, we'll find out. Maybe. 18. 18. And then back down Friday, 15, showers, wind easing and 15 again on Saturday. Tide times, you know, this is kind of probably theoretical today, but you never know. Could be some <laughs> shore diving around. Um, at the heads, Point Lonsdale, we are heading for a high tide at 11.03 and then we're going to head for a low tide at 4.17. So, so um, about two-ish. For slack. One-ish, mm. one thirty-ish. Mm. Yes, I think I'd be staying beside a fire somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and as dive gear at home. And as we've been reporting, if you want the latest... Um, Surf forecast. We haven't got Doctor Surf on today, but check out Swellnet for um, for what they say. It if doesn't you, sound you think like about be surfing. I'd be surprised. Maybe with this week. Oh, anyway, got time for some news. Mad. Yes, absolutely. I found this very interesting little article. Avoidance responses of minke whales to a particular frequency range of na- naval sonar. So you know, there's been a lot of work on. Do do sonar sonars in general, but particularly navies because they use such deep low frequency sonars. This is one to four kilohertz. Um, it does it disrupt whale movements, and there's actually not a lot of data on this. And so this was in the Marine Pollution Bulletin, and I, I could tell you the results. <laughs> Basically, unsurprisingly, some whales avoid bursts of um, sonar, and others don't. That's kind of what they found. Right. But the problem is they don't know. They, they, there's so little data. So this is data derived from four animals. Four. Four. 
And the kinds of behaviours they're looking at, and they have quantitative data, kinds of behaviours they're looking at, um, they initiate um, avoidance behaviours, which turns out to be turning away <laughs> and swimming the other direction. Um, but they're not associated with unusual diving behaviour. So they, instead of like they'll come, they'll hear it, and instead of going down, they'll turn around and go back away from it, which seemed to me to be really bleeding obvious. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the point I was trying to make is in, in one place that one of the avoidance behaviours, one animal, <laughs> okay, and they were tagged so they know exactly where they went and what they did. One animal had a five-fold increase in horizontal speed. Hmm. away from the source. Wow. Okay, so that's that's pretty kind of quick acceleration, isn't it? That would suggest I'm running away now. Yeah, I've had enough. Yeah. Now, the the point I'm trying to make here, though, is that this is an issue that's been going on for a very long time. There are no data. I mean, this this is a paper that's got real data with real tagged animals with a real source that they can really track exactly what they're doing. And it's one of the first of its kind to do that. And it's the first real actually measured insight into these animals mm. and their responses like it. And and the thing that surprised me, you know, I guess, you know, as an ecologist was just how little information, like real solid scientific data they, there is to help make decisions mm. for navies when they want to do and test and deploy and do particular things. So anyway, that was more my point about it. But What do you define as real data? Um, actual measured observations of what the whales do in response. Right, okay. So there's a lot of observed... And, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to Dave about this. You, mm. can, you can look at cetaceans and, and you can interpret what they're doing and, and you can see it. Um, and in this case, they have, you know, they had little devices, little tag data loggers on them. So when the whales turned away and then sped up, you had actual kind of measurements of it mm. as opposed to, oh, I reckon that whale's swimming away faster. Mm. And, and that's what observed observers have been able to do, observers have been able to say, oh, that, they, they swam away faster. Mm. But in this case, five times faster. Is, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I yeah. think that makes a difference. It's yeah. a bit of a breakthrough. So there was only four whales ta- yeah, no, tagged in total. Thing. Well, they pulled two data sources and I think they ended up with, um, yeah, yeah, four whales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> so anyway, it, it's a breakthrough. And I'd love to chat to Dave a bit later about this too, but it's a bit of a breakthrough yeah, it in is. terms of data. Um, and you think, gosh, you know, decisions are still being made in the absence of any information in these particular circumstances. Well, you can't work without data in any yeah. And, of course, if you find out that actually three-quarters of... Or if this scaled up, OK, three-quarters of all whales aren't worried by this, OK, you can dial back your concern a bit. But if it turns out, you know, it's such a small data source that, you know... 100%. Yeah, it might, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Anyway, that was all. That was the only one I thought I'd pop in today. Very good. Will you listen to some music? Let's do that. You're on Radio Marinara. We're going to play a little bit of um, Dr G um, and um, Adam Briggs and Dwayne Everett-Smith. And I just it's such a gorgeous little song and it's a tribute. And, of course, as you know, we are able to play his music um, because he was such a brilliant man. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Of course, from the 25th anniversary, um, Archie Roach CD, Charcoal Lane, 
Dr. G, um, Adam Briggs and Dwayne Everett-Smith, the children, came back. You're on Radio Maranoa. It is 17 minutes past the hour of 9 o'clock. Rex Hunter in full Rex swing now. <laughs> Complete with wetsuit on. Jeez. Yeah. He's sweaty diving bell. Um, we've got him. He's on the 2.5 kilometres down at the bottom of the ocean in the studio. Tell us about the HMAS Sydney. Well, um, as I sort of alluded to before, the uh, the Sydney was um, HMAS Sydney was a it was a battle cruiser. It belonged to Australia. We sort of purchased it in 1934 from the UK. Um, Prior to the fleet, I think at the time. Yeah, you know the biggest one of the biggest ones. Well, we well had. yeah, well it mm. was it was huge compared mm. to um, what we had. It was you know a couple of, couple of <laughs> <laughs> couple of tinnies, <laughs> couple of airpods. Yeah. <laughs> A couple of tinnies and yeah, a wooden a wooden cutter or something like that. But um, that was the pride of the fleet. And as we know, World War Two started in '39, and um, it went to the Mediterranean for a campaign there in 1940. Um, it, they were called the Lucky Ship because it uh, it survived. It survived <laughs> getting shot right up until 1941. They called right. it the Lucky Ship. The lucky Ship because right. it got a couple of um, couple of shots in the uh, in the funnel and a few other things. And sunk two um, Italian uh, warships hmm. in its cruise, um, and then was called back to Australia to take troops up to uh, Java and escort or escort, uh, escort ships around uh, Australia because we, were, you know, we had virtually nothing really. As we said, we had a, a couple of <laughs> couple of couple of tinnies, <laughs> couple of tinnies and a cutter, wooden cutter, and so it was. Um, it was escorted, um, I think it was the Zealander from um, Western Australia with troops up to Java. So it did that in uh, November 40, uh, 1941. It was making its way back uh, down the coast and just sort of north of Geraldton and it spotted um, what looked like a harmless merchant ship. Well, this harmless merchant ship was, uh, in fact, a, a, commerce, a German commerce ra- raider called the Cormoran and... Um, these guys were sort of well well versed and well well drilled about how to run a campaign, and it was just a normal ship, but it was fitted with guns and you know big guns and torpedoes and hidden, hidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was part of the uh, part of, part of their trick, and they would cruise up and down the coast, and then they'd build false false walls and change the paint colour and change the name. God. So, it was, wow, and it said, and they're a long way from home at this point too. They they'd, they'd been out for a while. Yeah, been out for you know. Quite a few months, so um, and sank a few other ships. So, mm. and they, the government knew that uh, this ship was cruising up and down the coast off Australia, but it changed its shape. You know, virtually every not every day, but you know, it would change, change, how, disguise itself. Logistical question: How can a ship change its shape? Like, how can it disguise itself? Just with plywood. They build plywood cabins and sorts of change the paint colours. And you so know, you'd like, so like if you had like a flat paint at the deck, you'd suddenly put a cabin on it or a couple of stories and make yourself yeah. look like another boat. Yeah, yeah, wow. that's exactly what they do. Or did. a funnel, even. Yeah, yeah, change funnels and God. wow. So it was fairly sophisticated. And then, so so I mean, probably half the crew spends its time making the ship look different. Yeah, yeah, pretty up the ship and wow. just changing colour schemes and. That's yeah. amazing, and no one cottoned onto it. No one thought that's just the same ship with an extra funnel. Well, <laughs> or they radiated in a different colour. Yeah, I just find that amazing. Yeah, well, they radiated. They thought the ship was another one coming from coming down from somewhere north. Or the the uh, Sydney thought it was, and so it approached approaches uh, the Cormoran and. Um, because that's the thing, they, they got themselves within range. Mm. Yeah. You know, because they didn't realise and so they took themselves into range. Well, that was a problem. They, uh, it, the ideal, if you're going to uh, approach one of these ships, mm. you keep back yeah. where they can't get a shot at you. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, they have to... But for some unknown reason, the captain felt quite relaxed. Mm. Uh, the guns, even the guns were pointing skyward on... On the, uh, on the Sydney. On the Sydney, yeah. And this is in wartime too. Yeah. This, is, this is the other thing <laughs> so, that yeah, I find really, really incredible safe. about this. Yeah. So he felt really safe. He felt really... Yeah, you wouldn't do that unless you felt pretty comfortable. But, yeah, it goes against all common sense. Yeah, yeah I, well, I guess yeah, too, yeah, looking so, yeah. at the remoteness of it <laughs> too, to nice. it might, I wonder whether it, it would have happened or not happened if it had been on the east coast of Australia. But you're talking about a very remote part of the west coast of Australia at a time when there's, yeah. you know, very... You might feel a bit safer. Well, yeah. Well, 
Who, who would... Well, he, you can't, you can't. You don't no, know what no, they exactly. can't, of course, yeah. of course. I mean, everyone so, makes mistakes, but it was... So they, they turned... Is it true that the captain brought himself then and side on as well? Yeah, they, so he gave a bigger target just as well. Wow. Side yeah. on to the uh, Cormoran and within yeah. less than six seconds they put, put like half a dozen shots, six inch, you know, big, big mm. guns, took out all the, um, the, the big guns on the Sydney. Just you can see the, sh- the damage in the underwater footage with a great big, you know, 115 centimetre hole through the side of this. So they wiped out the crew and all that. And the Sydney managed to get a, a few shots back, a um, couple of shots on the side of the Cormoran. But they kept on cruising, they were firing against each other and then eventually... They, uh, the Sydney got a, a torpedo in the bow, so the bow mm. was virtually just flapping in, in the wind. And then the last they, the Cormoran saw of the Sydney was heading off, uh, I think it was a northeast direction. And the uh, the Cormoran had a few shots, and it, that was on fire. The Sydney was on fire. They had the um, the Sydney was trying to put out the, all the fires, and because you know they have um, they have procedures where mm. they can isolate. Different sections, but when you when your bow falls off, the yeah, it's, no, it's game, over. Much it's game over. And so the um, I said the uh, the Sydney was last sitting seen heading sort of north northeast direction. The Cormoran they realised they were in all sorts of trouble, so that they actually abandoned the Cormoran, uh, got off with I think they lost maybe fifty fifty guys, uh, and then scuttled scuttled set, set some scuttling charges, and the Cormoran went to bottom. And the last anybody ever saw. Of the uh, Sydney was the uh, the Germans aboard, mm. and so six hundred and eighty, six hundred and forty five yeah. people uh, on the Sydney. Yeah, wow, so disappeared, and that and so hence because there were no survivors, there's no sense of where the Sydney is. Yeah, you know, it headed off that direction, but where did it go? Exactly, and um, the only ever thing ever found was a, a lifeboat was washed ashore. I think it was Shark Bay or somewhere yeah, like right. that. It was. Virtually just a skeleton, and a, I think it was a gun they found. And hmm. That was that was it. So then the um, so lots of people started looking for it. Lots of people started looking. For it. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories. You know, there's just like the Japanese. Of course, yeah. You can't get by without conspiracy. No, it's Harold Holt, yeah. obviously. Well, yeah. Harold Holt yeah, would have had on. something to do with yeah. it. <laughs> so this is um, so over the next you know fifty, fifty, mm. sixty years. There was quite a few um, searches carried out, but. Nobody had really, really done the proper research until um, the Finding Sydney Foundation got up, and it was just like you know, half a dozen people, but mm. really passionate about finding and solving this mystery. So they lobbied the government. Um, eventually, they came up with five. The government came up with five million dollars, which was enough for forty days of searching. So it's a very expensive game. Mm. Uh, and they uh, contract uh, David Moon's companies. Won the contract, so David Moons is a really, really well known wreck hunter, and that's the name of his book. He just, <laughs> he's just published, which, yeah. I, which I bought a copy of. Yeah, and um, he's kind of like a he's like a he's like a celebrity wreck hunter. Yes. Is that possible? <laughs> like I, you know, like it seems to me, you know, he's the. I, yeah, thought, he's I, thought, the... I thought you were our celebrity <laughs> wreck hunter, Rex. <laughs> on a local scale, David. Think, 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 Rex on a global scale. Right. <laughs> well. David did sign what, book two Rex Hunter. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> there you go. Acknowledged, Acknowledged appropriately. I, I shook his hand. <laughs> so we ha- let's move to the prison. What, what do we know about it now? Well, it's um, 2008. Uh, they con- got the contract to go and find it. So they spent, I think, within 10 days they'd actually found the site. And that's the remarkable thing about his approach. Because he actually he went to uh, Germany, found the nephew yeah. of the captain, found his old English German dictionary, and in the G- English German dictionary, Captain Detner had put a, a little pencil mark under each letter, which actually retraced the whole battle scene. It's amazing, and the position of where the, the vessel sank. Oh, wow. It was coded, and oh. and and he, part of his his. Like nobody realised that this existed, yes. and nobody also realised that the code, what the code meant, right? So, and so he helped break the code. So yeah, didn't they? while he was in wow. in um, prisoner of war camp in Australia yeah. during World War Two, it just marked out an actual accurate account of what happened, huh. and who said, went where and what they did. What happened? It's remarkable. 
So it's a really important piece of history. So yeah. from that, David worked out his search area, which was bigger bigger than the search area for the Titanic. Yeah. So you, it was like a couple of hundred square miles. Yeah, it was like, you know, hundreds. half a Tassie or something. Yeah, you know, right. bit it out and they kind of, you know. More than, yeah, it's mm. huge. So, so they um, end up finding in two and a half thousand metres of water. So when you're searching for stuff like that, you need, to get to the bottom, you need like 10,000 metres of tow cable. Just get your sonar down where you can look for it. And eventually, just through mowing the lawn across this, the paddock, and they uh, they found it. And of, they also you. Use CSIRO data with mm. um, you know currents and all that because all that affects. And you plot bits of flotsam and currents and. It's a remarkable story about yeah. how they they went back and they worked out the the tides and the weather conditions of the time and then modelled where things would have gone and then traced where, like had that, that boat where yeah. that boat turned up and, if, oh, it must have come from here and yeah. just extraordinary. It's just a real detective story. Yeah. Just fantastic. And he wouldn't go out mm. until he had what he thought was the location effectively yeah. and narrowed it down to, as you say, something half the size of Tassie. <laughs> but, you know, compared to the Indian Ocean, you yeah. know, that's a small spot. So we found the cormoran first and once he found yeah. the cormoran, he knew that... Go that way. <laughs> head yeah. northeast. Yeah. And then it was only like three days later they found the Sydney. It's just wow. a phenomenal piece of work. So how much of this has been documented? They've, um, they've, ev- had, well, they've had ROVs over the whole vessel and mm. they've had the... Um, you can see some videos online, yeah. I think. Munition experts have had, had a look and seen the damage and just worked out what mm. actually happened. Mm. And just, there was just no no chance for the Sydney. Now, it's in international waters, is that right? It would it would be in international waters, I think. But it's a war grave. Yes. So it's all, you know, yeah. kind of been declared and, you know, yeah. Well, it's, it, no, it's a no-go zone. Not yeah, that you're not not anyone's diving in. No, that's true, yeah. Many thousand metres underwater <laughs> yeah. anyway. Well, oddly enough, this is on off subject, but um, World War Two warships in the South trying to see a disappearing at a great rate through um, uh, private salvage companies. <gasps> really? So that's another another story. <laughs> what oh, would you do? Oh, let's come back and talk about that another time. Yeah. What would you do with it? Well, scrap metal. Oh, oh my goodness, that's huge. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Rex. So, it, if you get a chance, see David Mearns. It's it's well worth it. Well worth it. Well, books well. New book. Them. What's it called again? Uh, Shipwreck Hunter. Yeah. He's been listening Stole to Radio Marinara. He has. Rex. I reckon he picked it up off us. Yeah. Yeah. He said, he said, yeah. what's three triple O? <laughs> <laughs> Did he? <laughs> Did you educate him? Yes, Did you tell him about Radiothon? <laughs> Community radio station, so he was very impressed. Oh, very good. As, should, he, as he rightly should be. should say there's a couple of kind of shipwrecks in the studio this morning. But, um. Now, a few weeks ago we reported the exciting news that the 50th whale just been catalogued for Port Phillip Bay and Western Port into the Victorian Humpback Whale Catalogue. It's a collaboration between Dolphin Research Institute and Two Bays Project and the recording of this 50th whale represents an exciting milestone and contributes to a growing database of knowledge about migration patterns of whales along the Australian coastline. To tell us all about this 50th whale cataloguing and what it means, welcoming back now to Triple R, our first time in studio from Dolphin Research Institute, Project Coordinator Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron. And uh, great to have you here. Fantastic to be here on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Let's start by um, talking about the whale cataloguing project. How long has it been going on for? Well, really, uh, we've been cataloguing the animals for about three years now, but the project itself has data uh, which goes back to 1984, and we have fluke ID photographs from 2006 onwards. Okay. So, and this is really what it comes down to, isn't it, in terms of how you identify a whale? Because it's, putting it in context, you're on a boat, whale surfaces... Yeah, they don't, they don't call out a name. No. Oh, hi, it's Bob. <laughs> that is correct. Um, uh, yeah, it is the underside of the, the tail or the fluke of the animal, which is unique to an individual. Um, we do use the boat to go and collect those images, but mostly we rely on citizen science. So uh, tour boats and people are on the water uh, just happen to snap a photo of an animal like that. It's, um, it's straight into the catalogue. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that this was um, recording whales in Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. I'm guessing I had a bit of a stab at the, the geographical boundaries. Is that accurate or is it further than that? Yeah, it is a bit further than that. We go from Barwon Heads through to Inverloch, so we cover the open coast as well, which is important because not every animal will enter both bays. Okay. So and is, does it surprise you that there's 50? 
you know, they, this is 50 different individuals and they're humpback whales, so they're not tiny. That's you correct. Know. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising to have 50 in the catalogue, mm. but it is difficult to get those images, so we're very happy to have 50. Uh, in context, just this season we've had over 300 animals move through the western port section wow. of the survey area. Some of those will have already visited the Port Phillip region as well. But this is pretty much an unknown or previously unknown migratory corridor for humpback whales for the uh, eastern seaboard. So it's something really unique and quite new for us. So when you say unknown, unknown to kind of modern science in a sense, but uh, there's two kind of historical um, elements I'd like to bring in. One is, did the whalers know about this corridor in the past? Are there stories of... Because humpbacks were target species, weren't they, for whalers at one point? They were. They were one of the primary target species, particularly for the east coast, but not so much through the Victorian coast Ah, as far as we can understand. It was mostly southern right whales for that region. And so there's not like an historical evidence base of of, uh, whale hunters, you know, kind of going, well, right here, hey, there's a a migratory path here. It's not really been well researched. Um, The east coast is really well understood in terms of whaling and how many numbers were taken during the, the industrial whaling um, era, and it's also very well documented the recovery of those species or that species up the east coast. But through Victorian waters, the west coast of Victoria, even through to South Australia and the west coast of Tasmania, was pretty much poorly understood and mostly still is. And are there any traditional owner stories? I mean, now we're dipping into an even harder past to kind of um, to pick up, but are there any traditional owner stories that you guys have come across or people have brought forward, you know, perhaps some locals from the Kulin Nation or something, about, you know, some seasonal migration of large whales? Not so much through Victoria. Um, that would be something that's very interesting to look into, but certainly from the southern coast of South, uh, New South Wales, there's some very uh, yeah, interesting stories yeah, about... About. Uh, indigenous folk and uh, the, the certain blossoms in the trees which yeah. indicate the presence of whales and the seasons changing and the, the way they moved amongst the uh, the ranges in terms of food and getting to the coast for seafood and the whales fit into that picture as well. So there may be something similar here in Victoria yeah, also. Wow. Mm. So where are they heading? Are they going from east to west through Bass Strait? Is that the... Is that the Trip. The majority of the animals are moving from west to east, so it okay. seems that they are moving to the east coast and then north. Right. Some of them do move west, but we suspect that those are probably sub-adult animals which are finding their way in life and still perhaps haven't <laughs> quite lost. got there. <laughs> a little bit lost or looking for friends. Yeah, wow. And so can we go back to the flukes? Is, yeah, sure. Yeah, is that all right? Because I'm really interested in how do you... It's like a fingerprint... I mean, it really does tell an individual apart. It, it is. It's exactly like a fingerprint. It's just easier to look at. Um, <laughs> it's much harder to, to investigate fingerprints amongst people uh, than it is to look at whale It's also very hard to get a whale to stick their, you know, like tail on the... It's the pad, the ink pad, and get them to stick it on the big piece of paper exactly, as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're very fortunate that they don't have to go through that yeah. process. Um, you yeah, need a large pad. <laughs> yeah. um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that moment when, you know, that when you recorded whale number 50... Can you talk us through that? Yeah, there was really... Because you know you're uh, sitting on 49, you're waiting for number 50. <laughs> well, our, our aim was to hopefully get to 50 whales this, this season and we've exceeded that now. Um, the actual day that that happened was a, uh, a, a tour uh, out of Phillip Island on a vessel called the Casey Lee, which was running um, uh, winter whale cruises. And um, my, my family were on board and my niece was standing next to me with her, uh, her camera and I, we snapped the shot of the same animal at the same time and as it turns out... That ended up being whale number 50. So no. uh, it was uh, quite an extraordinary experience. And now we might have a new budding marine biologist in, Fantastic. The, in our midst. Oh, that's sensational. Did you know it was number 50 that time? Because, I mean, when you're talking about those sort of distinctive features of the, of the flukes, in your mind, kind of, do you know what the other 49 look like? Or did you kind of have to go back, you, you get the photo and you compare them against all of the other ones? Yeah, we have an idea of in our heads about what's what's what, but really you need to go back to each photo and compare. Mm. So at the time, we knew we were in the ballpark of 50. But um, when we looked at that particular animal, it was quite a unique pattern on the underside of the fluke. So we we're quite confident that this was going to be a new animal to the catalogue. And we've since matched it to uh, a sighting in 2014 at Byron Bay in New South Wales. Oh, right. Excellent. Um, so without going through all of the others individually, <laughs> what, what do we know about those 50 whales and, and the other 49 as well? Like, do we, Other than kind of getting a, an idea about what their tail or their flukes look like, what, what, what else do we know about them? 
we know very little about them. Okay. Um, if we're lucky, we can sex them if they happen to roll over at mm. the right time. Um, but mostly we know nothing about their habits. And that's our next step we'd like mm. to get to. And that is to put, enter our, our flute catalogue into the national catalogue and start matching against uh, other catalogues across the coast. And hopefully we can start to build a picture on movement, um, perhaps even age. The num- whale number mm. 50 was probably quite young when it was first photographed based on the photos that we have. Mm. And um, these animals represent a very, very small percentage of a very large population of animals. So we're in in the box seat to really understand a smaller group of animals, whereas our colleagues on the East Coast are dealing with huge catalogues of 12,000 images. I was going to ask you that. What what do you think... um I mentioned before there have been 300 or so animals that can come through Western Port Zone, I think you called it, in, in the previous year. How many of... Like, so, hmm, I'm trying to think. The 50, are they a subsample of 20,000 or are they a subsample of 10,000? You know, how do you... Like, what, what side of subsample do you think you've got? Uh, well, first of all, the 300 is represented by four species. Yeah, OK. Um, right. So we're talking about killer whales, yeah, southern right. right whales, minke whales and humpbacks. Yep. But in terms of the humpbacks themselves, they're a subsample of around about twenty six to 28,000 animals yeah, right. of the east coast of Australia at the moment. That's the wow. best modelled estimate for this year. Goodness me. That's so a pretty healthy population. And it's growing very quickly. Uh, there's some concerns as to how fast this population is growing and what sort of carrying capacity the environment has yeah. for that large animal that's taking quite a lot out of the environment. Just a question, picking up on what Rex was saying before about moving west to east or east to west, and just in general about the the migration patterns. Why would they come through? And you may not know the answer to this. Why would they come through Bass Strait if if they're coming up from Antarctica to warmer waters? Why are they taking a detour through Bass Strait? Is it for feeding purposes, or like, do we know much about that? That's an excellent question. Um, we first thought many years ago that whales more or less went in a straight line from mm. Queensland mm. to Antarctic and back up again. Um, since the evolution of tags, and particularly satellite tags, we've begun to understand a little more about where these animals go. So animals that have been tagged on the southern New South Wales coast have ended up in New Zealand. Some went straight down the, the coast of, or east coast of Tasmania. And one out of the 16 tagged went through Bass Strait. <laughs> That's why we think our group of animals that are moving through is quite small uh, in comparison to the east coast. But... Um, there must be others. So, and we think that these animals may travel as far across as uh, Western Australia or mm. south of Western Australia. So, you know, we always think about things being uh, shortest distance in a, is a straight line, but whales don't think like that. No, that's right. I, I was thinking about this one too because I wondered exactly the same thing and I wondered if, you know, a, you know somewhere along you know, in, in history some family group of the, of the whales, you know, had accidentally turned left at the bottom of Tassie and found the upwelling you know, over near Portland. And we went, oh, this is kind of a useful place to hang out for a bit. And then went on, but I'm supposed to be going over there and then ducked across, through, saw the gap and ducked across through Bass Strait. And then that just gets passed down through whale communication. So you've effectively got a, I don't know, the cousins who turn left at the bottom of Tassie and go off to the, <laughs> off to the west and then come back. It, it would seem that, I mean, there is a nice food source over there. I know there's great food sources all up the upwellings of the east coast. But I don't know. Is there something in that? Is there I'm is, just making it up. I, 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 I agree with you. I think that um, if you find something good on a, on your way down to the south, and you might remember that for next year. And, and tell your close friends, and but not the rest of the family. Correct, yeah. <laughs> and, and there we have um, some evolution in migration mm. there. It's, mm. it's the same way we have evolution in, in humpback whale song. Think information mm. gets shared amongst animals, just like it does for humans. Mm. We were talking about earlier about your um, partner, Two Bays, and you've also been working in partnership with Wildlife Coast Cruises. What, what are their inputs to this work? Uh, well, I might give them a plug while we're here. <laughs> Is that allowed? Um, <laughs> given, so, their, given their role as partners with this program, absolutely. Yeah, well, look, um, Wildlife Coast Cruise is not any ordinary cruise. Uh, they do have scientists that work at the company and are very good at collecting data, including um, southern right whale, humpback whale, killer whales, excellent on killer whales, I must say. Um, and they've been uh, taking control of the western port section of the survey region. And myself and my colleague Sue at the Dolphin Research Institute, we look after the Port Phillip region. At the end of the season, we merge those data together Mm. and we come up with totals and best estimates, but things are getting hard because we've got to try and predict what is and what isn't a re-site between the two sites. So um, their involvement has been excellent. They're providing a platform 
for the likes of myself and others. Um, they're getting people out in the environment. Mm. The citizen scientists are getting involved and we're building momentum and, and enthusiasm and understanding of, uh, of, of whales. And then potentially making those connections up the east coast as well because, of course, we're in whale-watching season now. Mm. Um, particularly on the south coast of New South Wales, September seems to be the time when they, they're making their way uh, along the coastline. I've sort of seen them quite often up that way yep. but there's potential for your networks locally to connect with other networks up the coast as well yeah we're very well connected already because mm. of our previous work with other universities and groups but um that's not going to be at the hard part the hard part is really going to be putting the effort into getting those data analyzed against the east coast samples mm. so so if someone's listening and they're saying well I, I actually i was out and i saw a whale and had its tail in the air and i took a photo is there a place people can send is there a site or a repository somewhere or yeah absolutely we've um we're well supported by the dolphin research institute and they've provided a platform for people to deposit fluke id photographs and sighting information and that helps with the obviously with the data collection because we're Mm. not in the field um so we have a page which people can upload them to and that page is uh, www.dolphinresearch.org.au and just click on the happy looking whale Uh, (laughs) nice or if you're very technically minded forward slash two bays now i've got a few um good spots for catching a sighting as well which um which i picked up from your press release yes yep do you want to read those out I should know them off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but the Barwon Coast, any, any high ground along the coast is going to be a good spot to spot whales, um, particularly Cape Shank, the Barwon Coast, uh, areas of uh, uh, Phillip Island and the Bass Coast, on those cliff tops. And, in fact, there is uh, what we call now a, um, a supported uh, whale trail along the Bass Coast where people can go and read about whales' interpretation, interpretive boards and actually spot them at the same time. And it gives people ownership and, and understanding, I think. Great. And um, just some whale-watching regulations for people listening Um, because we know they exist. I think people maybe aren't aware of what they are. So you you can't deliberately approach a whale closer than... Shall I throw to you here? Yes. (laughs) You'll know this. If you're in a recreational vessel and you do not hold a permit, 200 metres is the minimum distance and there's a whole lot of technicalities about where you're allowed to be and where not to be. But if you remember 200 metres, you're in the right spot. If you're on a jet ski or something similar, 300 metres is the exclusion zone around whales. And 500 metres height for aircraft, and that includes drones. I think that's a really important one to mention as well. That's the one that's been the most uh, difficult for people, I think, to understand. People don't think of of drones as As aircraft aircraft. so much. Mm. Mm. But currently, as the legislation states, drones fit into aircraft until such time that that legislation changes. It's 500 metres. Great. And one last question. You've hit your 50. You're aiming for a big 100 now. (laughs) You're going for the tonne. Yes, we would love to get to 1,000. But, uh, look, the next next milestone will be 100, and we actually have an appeal to help us get there and part of that is going to be starting to combine those those fluke id photographs with our east coast colleagues um so the 100 whales appeal is uh, on the same website that i just mentioned and if anybody would like to be part of that uh, push towards building a greater understanding of these large mammals in our waters and being part of something uh, interesting and and groundbreaking just visit the website we'll put a link on our facebook <coughs> excuse me after this thanks dave no worries Excellent at all, Brian. having it's you. It's been in. a pleasure. Yeah, great to have you in. And uh, we look forward to having you in again. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Talk more about uh, whales and dolphins as well. Been speaking with Dave Donnelly from the Dolphin Research, Inst- Research Institute. Got my mouth around that one. Hi, this is Tony Barber. Do you like fish? Or maybe marine invertebrates? Listen to Radio Marinara for all things wet and salty. Sundays at 9am on 102.7... Three triple R. I just have to, Bron. You're on three triple R. Ten minutes to ten, ten minutes to the doctors. It is indeed. Now, a few weeks ago, Diane Bray from New Zealand Victoria, she joined us to talk about some of the recent incredible discoveries from the deep sea expedition of the uh, CSIRO vessel, the Investigator. We didn't even scratch the surface of what came (laughs) up during their 31-day trip up the east coast of Australia. So it's with great pleasure we welcome back Diane Bray to talk some more about what was discovered and a few other things going on. Um, Museums plans for Science Week uh, and this great Friday evening nocturnal sessions at the museum. Great to be here again, Bron. Great and to we didn't back. even scratch the surface when we went down there. I, I seem to recall <laughs> you guys got stuck on some faceless fish, which we won't talk about today because we'll never get off it again. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. We did. We talked a lot about the faceless fish. Now, 
we did have plans to talk about some other discoveries. And I think when you left, we, we started talking about this um, little experiment that what happens when you send polystyrene several thousand metres down below sea level? Should we start there? Absolutely, yeah. I sent a whole bunch of polystyrene cups um, down to 4,000 metres. I'm sure that there's some sort of a depth at which it doesn't make any difference, but polystyrene is essentially a whole bunch of um, air bubbles injected into a plasticky thing. And so you tend to send it down and the pressure... Uh, crushes the air bubbles out. It crushes It crushes inside the cup, it crushes on every surface of the cup and so you end up coming back with these tiny little, I guess, three centimetre tall styrene cups. And but in the shape of a cup? In the shape of... Sometimes you've got to work at the shape of a cup. Sometimes Goodness. I sent them down in... Um, each one of them in uh, stockings, like tied in between yeah. each one, like these sausages in stockings. And we found that if you put a small bit of paper towel... Just a small bit of paper towel inside, it helps keep its shape. And if you put too much, you end up with a gumboot. <laughs> wow. It's reminding me of when I was a kid and we used to do shrinkies with twisty yes. packets. Yeah. You put your shrinky in the oven, put a twisty packet in the oven and it comes out as a little kind of miniature version of it. And I don't know what we did with them after that. What are, what are your plans for your um, little, um, your shrunken, death-shrunken polystyrene cups? Well, uh, my plans are I administer a website called fishesofaustralia.net.au which is a website on all Australian fishes, and we want to put larval fish information. Um, this is going mm. totally off track, but larval mm. fishes start off as a little millimetre-long thing with a mouth, eyes, and not much else, a tadpole. And to work out what that turns into, that this little larval fish ends up being a coral trout, is a really serious taxonomic thing that a colleague of mine, Jeff Lees, did, and so we actually want to put all this information on so that people around the Indo-Pacific can identify that. Because ah. you can't manage marine protected areas or fish stocks if you don't know what the larvae are doing. No, that's right. And so uh, is part of why you were doing this with the um, polystyrene cups and, and other things is to say, well, actually, that's not a fish larvae. No, what I want to do is run a possible campaign. Yeah. So they're kind of possible uh, presents. Yeah, right. Now, we talked about the, um, the faceless fish. And we've got a bit of time. I'm wondering whether we might... Um... <laughs> what about other things? Because there were great other things, weren't there? What's that? Found. Yeah, that's what I was going to oh, ask. Oh, OK, cool. Yeah. Um, anything else? Well, obviously, lots of, lots of stuff else. Um, anything in particular you want to kind of bring some attention to? And I, let, let's jump forward to... Because um, I was going to talk about it at the end, but let's talk about it now, the nocturnal sessions at the museum. So Friday night drinks... And and it's kind of like Friday night drinks at the museum, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's, it's actually just a venue. So it's Friday night <laughs> drinks in a science venue, actually. Yeah, um, fantastic. Kind of not beating anybody over the head with science or museum-y stuff, but... Uh, there's generally a table of stuff out that people can peer at. So we had some of the fishes out on Friday night um, for people to look at with drinks and food and live music and bars and whiskey bars and craft beers. And it's just awesome. I think there are about 2,000 people there oh, on wow. Friday night. It is just awesome. Oh, wow. How often are you having them? Is it every month? Every month. Right. And First Friday of every month. Great. And each one has a different kind of theme or a different focus. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, it's kind of all the same focus in a sense in that it's just a venue to bring people together. People together. Yeah. Um, but there would always be a bunch of kind of pop-up tables with some of the museum stuff. So then there'd be one in the Indigenous Gallery and one in Humanities and a couple in Oh, you can actually move uh, right you around parts of it. Wow. Through, the only place you can't go into is pretty much into the Children's Museum, but you can mm -hmm. go anywhere. That's probably appropriate. It's just awesome. <laughs> so what, what sort of audience is coming along to this? Yeah. Well, it's aimed at bringing in the 25 to 35-year age group, but we, we, we get a mix. It's over 18s, so right. it's an adult yep. thing. No so kids, don't bring the no, kids? Don't bring the kids. No kids allowed. And I can't remember who the band was. The band for the first one was Dorsal Fins, which is why I remember that. And I expected caudal <laughs> fins fish. and ventral fins and ventral fins, but... <laughs> Um, maybe they were the names of the individual musicians. <laughs> yes. No, the band was actually yeah, maybe they were. So, so new and emerging bands um, with DJs and lights, and the, I mean, pretty Great. much the lights turned off. And it's just awesome. So, bringing it back to what we do here, talking about things wet and salty, and the reason why I've asked you about nocturnal because I'm aware that. La and I'm aware because you told me off here that, that last Friday um, w featured some stuff from the investigator yeah, yeah, we had, expedition. Yeah, we what had, did you have out? We had a couple of tables. So Mel McKenzie and Phoebe Lewis and Tim O'Hara were on one. They were all on the investigator trip. Mel and Tim work at the museum and Phoebe's a PhD student who's working on plastics. And Martin Goman and myself, so they had a bunch of invertebrates and rubbish right. and uh, Martin Goman and myself had a bunch of really cool fish, which I've actually found some 
absolutely awesome video footage of the kinds of things that we caught. In, in fact, I found video footage of the faceless fish. So I was playing that on a screen too. Did you get lots of people coming up and asking you about the faceless fish? Not so much the fa- yeah a, a bit, but not so much the faceless fish because we weren't adjacent to that. But right. all sorts of other blind gelatinous cuskeels and tripod fishes and some of those amazing things that you find down at those depths. And so people who are turning up to, to, to this are really interested in the content, not just the craft beer. Probably a mix. Yeah, right. Probably a mix. I don't know if you know the museum, but there's that mm. big space outside the Forest Gallery yes. where there's, they put up a big stage there and then people from there can wander throughout That's all the galleries downstairs and upstairs. But we certainly do, and you can wander around with your beer into some of the places. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Fasc- they were fascinating. It's great. A mm. couple of quick ones to finish up on because we're fast approaching 10 o'clock. National Science Week is coming up from the 12th to the 20th of August, so it pretty much coincides with our Radiothon, which is why we've brought you in today. What have you got coming up for Science Week? So we've got another small pop-up exhibition with more of the stuff that we collected on the investigator trip and a little showcase of the rubbish we collected, plus um, some specimens or some of the kinds of things we've collected. The museum's done a bunch of bioscans over the last few years, so um, some of those, and there'll be various talks on the Friday and the Saturday the 18th and 19th, the 19th and 20th probably. From some of the scientists oh, on the investigation? From some of the scientists mm. on the investigation oh, and, and And talking about their specific areas of expertise, because this is pretty much why they were there, isn't it? I mean, you've got your, your people who specialise in feather stars and brittle stars and, and holothuroids and, and other sorts yeah, of creatures. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. Um, before we let you go, next week kicks off our 2017 Radiothon and um, this year's theme is It's Alive, so it's kind of like a B-grade horror theme. <laughs> before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the freakiest marine animal that you've seen. Maybe let's B-grade look, horror freaky. Let's, um, let's, you know. let's go to the... Um, it may well be the faceless fish, but whatever came up on the investigator, was there kind of a creature that came up that you went, oh, my God? Well, it kind of was the faceless fish, but also we caught some of those awesome things that live in the twilight zone with their great big teeth and lights and, you know, they're always freaking like anglerfish? Amazing. Well, we didn't get any anglerfish, but, but dragonfish. Okay. Those yeah, big right. things with chin barbels, bioluminescent chin barbels, and just their, their main aim is to get a meal, so they've got the freakiest, scariest teeth you've ever seen. <laughs> and they... And they uh, how big are they? They're actually very big. Um, one of the ones we got, I guess, yeah. would have been about... Like 30 centimetres. 30 centimetres yeah. or so. Yeah, and they look like they are the size of a battleship, you know, because of all the stuff they've got. Absolutely, absolutely. But most of the stuff's really not huge. Awesome. Thanks for coming in, Diane. And um, post-radiothon, we'll have you in again and we'll, we'll maybe go through some of the, the creatures that have come up on the investigator and, and sort of work through them and yes. describe them for our listeners and for us because I'm, I'm fascinated to find out more about them. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Di. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.